Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Andrew, whose last name I will not give because he's asked me not to. He's a, a real thoroughbred, as my dad would say. A, a really thoughtful and interesting human being who spends his time doing I, what I would probably characterise as, as relatively menial jobs in order to give himself more brain space to do uh, quite high-level thinking. And I've, I've finally managed to lure him onto the podcast to have a chat. And I hope we can have him back if you enjoy listening to this. Uh, please tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, or email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com is the place to do that. I always really appreciate your emails. It's fantastic. Uh, a couple of people have just come on board recently and are listening from the beginning, which is... I mean, I don't know if I would have the courage to do that all, through all of the bad audio quality and through all of my teething problems, but I appreciate that you are doing that and I am interested to see how that sounds from your end, the progress of my thinking over the years now it is that I've been doing the podcast. I wanted to say a big thank you to the AMP Tomorrow Fund because tomorrow <laughs> I'm flying out to Los Angeles to the LA Podcast Festival and uh, that is entirely due to the grant that they gave me. Uh, and I will be doing as many podcasts as I can while I'm there, as well as meeting other cool podcasters and otherwise bringing Tea with Alice to the world as much as I possibly can, as much as is humanly possible within the capacity of my human capacity. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. So thank you to the AMP Tomorrow Fund for making that possible. Other than that, if you are in LA, I will be doing some gigs. I will be doing a show on the 7th in the evening at the 10.30 at the Hollywood Improv. I'm doing the 10.30 show at the Hollywood Improv. I'll be doing a spot there. I will also be at Flappers. They'll have to confirm the dates and times of those other things. If you're in LA and feel like catching up for a cup of tea, shoot me an email, alicerfraser at gmail.com. I will be doing nothing but having tea with people, doing podcasts and exploring LA. Um, I've got a couple of meetings as well, but that is, you know, uh, I might as well say I'm going to be spitting in the wind. It is Hollywood after all, I think. Meetings are the things that people do who are not doing anything real with the world. That's my impression. I could be wrong. Meetings could be the most important and fantastic thing in the world, but I think meetings are probably not. Meeting is such a a nondescript word. I don't know exactly what it means, but uh, I have some of those, whatever they are. And uh, I am also in the process of putting up my show for next year, putting it up to all the festivals. I will be doing Adelaide next year. I will not be doing the Perth Fringe, though I may be doing Perth Comedy Festival. I'll be doing Adelaide, I'll be doing Melbourne, probably Perth, definitely Sydney, and then <laughs> Edinburgh again. So that's the, the shape of my year so far. If you have any festivals that you really like that are in your neck of the woods and you think I would enjoy doing, let me know. I, uh, I would be happy to come anywhere and do my show anywhere. I'm, I'm going to be doing <laughs> four shows next year, which is to say I will be doing the trilogy of Savage, The Resistance and Empire uh, on the weekends of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. But I will also be doing a new show, which is going to be called Ethos. So keep an eye out for that on my Twitter if you follow me on Twitter, on my Facebook if you follow me on Facebook. 
on my blog, if you follow me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Fraser. Thank you, everybody who contributes. Thank you, everybody who just follows. Both of those things are incredible. I really appreciate the support. Uh, otherwise, I should put up the dates on my website, but I'm not great at that. That is not my... Um, that is not the thing that I'm best at, keeping the website dates up to date. So you're better off following me on Twitter or on Facebook or on Patreon or on this podcast. I'm, I'm more regular about putting my dates up here. I think the nature of a website is it's a little bit static or something. I don't find myself visiting my own website very often. And so I don't find myself noticing that the dates are not up to date. And of course, social media tends to be a more regularly updated thing I'm more likely to tell you where I am at any given time or usually actually I, I say the day after I've been somewhere um, if you see a, a photo up on my Instagram it's usually of a place I am no longer in just because I've had a few slightly um, slightly intense experiences with people who have followed me and then followed me so uh, that's an interesting fact if you can time travel, you can catch me anywhere. But in reality, I'm usually somewhere else by the time I've posted a photo on Instagram, which also has the benefit of uh, giving me a little bit more time to decide if a, a thing is a good thing to put up or not, um, which I think we should all do a little bit. I feel like there should be a moment of friction between writing something and posting it where the thing goes, are you sure? And you say, yes. And then it says, are you really sure? Maybe it shouldn't post it for another hour and then say, are you really sure? There's that uh, never send an email after midnight kind of uh, paranoia that I have a little bit as well as the paranoia about, well, is it paranoia if it happens about people following me to places where I am? That said, that rambling done, I'm quite excited about going to LA tomorrow, guys. I am. It's, um, it's a big thing going all the way to the land of the Americas. I hope that it's not... I mean, I imagine in LA things will be comparatively relaxed in the absence of any direct natural disasters, but it is a tense country at the moment. It's a very tense country. I'm hoping that the customs people don't look too closely at some of the stamps in my passport uh, or judge my religious or political stance to um, I don't have any kind of threatening religious or political stance what I mean is the customs thing at, at in America is weird every individual customs officer has discretion over who can enter um, which is a strange thing I know people who've been turned back at the border uh, which is not good I hope that is not me I hope I am in LA I will tell you when I'm in LA uh, follow me on all of the things and I will start posting I will start posting updates I'll try and stay on it this is extremely rambling I am excited and I'm packing and I'm also packing everything that I have because my house is being sold I'm sitting in an empty house when I say my house I mean my, my father's house is being sold sitting in an empty house with all of the stuff including the stuff that I don't need to take to LA but will probably need to take to London if I go to London after that I don't know where I'm going after LA which is another reason why LA is looming so big in my mind because after I come back from LA I do not know where in the world I will be going 
or staying or living or performing or doing. So if you have any tips, let me know. Without further ado, this has been very long and very rambly and I thank you for your indulgence. Uh, I will let you listen to me talking to my friend Andrew. So who are you and uh, what did you last drink? My name is Andrew. Uh, the last thing I had to drink was water, I'm afraid, which is not much in with the theme of the podcast, as I understand matters. That's all right. That's my fault. We're, li- we're sitting in the empty shell of my home uh, and I don't even have tea to offer, which feels deeply unnatural to me. But <laughs> we'll, we'll have to make do. Uh, so what have you been wrestling with recently? What have you been thinking about? Oh, wrestling? I, don't, I wouldn't... I have been thinking a little bit about uh, the nature of good manners. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in that uh, I am fond of good manners and I think people are starting to sort of miss the point of them a little bit. So, first, why are you fond of them? And secondly, what do you think the point of them is? Maybe that's the same thing. I'm fond of them because I'm not very good in social situations. So, I like a set of ritualistic rules I can follow that allow me to be polite to people. And I think the point of them is to uh, acknowledge the humanity of other people without having to know very much about them. Uh, interesting. So it's a sort of a... Yeah, it's a, it's a gesture towards them. You're like, I know you have feelings. I know you have uh, humanness. And so I'm going to make a gesture towards that by being polite. Yes, essentially, yeah. And in the absence of the ritual, you have to have more of a sense of them kind of intuitively. You have to actually know them as a person, like, uh, which is kind of really impossible to do like with more than like 10 people at a time. Um, yeah, or else you have to be super charming. I think that's one of the problems that we have at the moment, which is that people are charming rather than polite. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's always that sort of superficial charm where people are kind of enchant other people with, you know, eye contact and repetition of their name and those uh, all those how to win friends and influence people things without actually engaging with them. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing about manners is that they're culturally based, like th- this, this set of rules. And in a modern culture, it kind of doesn't work as well as it used to. Purely because um, uh, it's a different set of rules for people you meet from different backgrounds and you don't know them. Mm, so you think multiculturalism is to blame for the death of manners to a certain extent? Okay, that's kind of, yes, which is like it's not nice to say bad things about multiculturalism. On the whole, I'd say multiculturalism is worth it. But uh, yeah, I'd say manners have kind of been one of the uh, fatalities along the way. One of the uh, side effects, as it were. Yeah. I mean, you can tell if somebody's trying to be polite, even if they are from a different culture. I mean, there isn't such a broad spectrum of cultural norms, at least in the manners department. There can be. I mean, uh, attitudes towards women can vary dramatically in terms of how what the right way to treat a woman is. Um, and... Uh, you know, all sorts of little things like uh, the, the polite way to eat food can vary pretty radically. So you look like a barbarian in certain contexts. Yeah, that's true. I mean, certainly 
I hadn't thought about yet the way that people treat women if you are in somebody's house and you ignore their wife that can either be extremely polite or extremely impolite mm. I mean I would argue I don't know I think I'm maybe a cultural imperialist about some things as a woman I would prefer to be treated like a person <laughs> how dare you how dare I uh, yeah. and I think that my womanness should come second to my personness, uh, which sh- maybe means that I won't get first on the lifeboats mm. uh, on the Titanic. But I think I'm willing to take that, given that we're far enough away from a society where that kind of emergency is common. Yeah, I mean, uh, we we do still have our big natural disasters, and yeah, women people don't tend to do the whole women and children first thing anymore. I think. Um, which again kind of feels wrong to me. Children first I'm into. Uh, women not so much, I guess. Seems fair. Um, Maybe women sort of sit, sit 30% first until the pay gap closes. <laughs> 30%? Pay gap's like, I think, 2% now. In uh, Depending on how you crunch the numbers. Yes. Somewhere between 2 and 17%, I think, mm. in Australia, or 2 and 23%. Mm. I think is the range that we're given. Depending on industry, I guess. I, I haven't followed it closely, to be frank, but, meh. It doesn't feel like a big problem to me personally, but, again, I'm a man, so not really having the right perspective on it, I suppose. What's Apparent the right perspective? Objectivity is the right perspective, and uh, I am not always objective. Like, the, the lived experience doesn't capture, uh, you know, the whole, which is why we have statistics and I'm facts. not a great statistician. Yeah, but, you know, statistics and facts, they're two different things. You can talk about a uh, a 2 to 23% pay gap and that is not the same thing as saying that there's a uh, causal factor from people, you know, discriminating against women there. I mean... That's the hard question. The statistics are kind of easier. Yes. I mean, I think I think the general argument about the pay gap is from both sides, as far as I understand it, which is not... I, again, I'm not embedded in it uh, because I work for myself, so I pay myself as much as I pay myself. Uh, mm. But... Is that um, how that works? The argument, I think, from people who don't think the pay gap is a big problem is that women tend to self-select for lower-paid industries, uh, caring industries and so on and so forth. The counter-argument to that is that when men enter an industry in large numbers, the prestige and pay tend to go up for that industry. So the idea being that women's work is devalued because it is work that is dominated by women rather than because it is of less value inherently. Mm. Sure. I mean, I know, I know that happened with uh, with computing, that initially that was th- a big part of the process was women's work. Yeah, it was seen uh, as, se- as sort of an extension of secretarial work. Yeah. And uh, certainly now it is very much viewed as a male-dominated field and it it's pretty bloody well paying uh, by and large. But <laughs> see, that's such a, a subtle effect that you almost... I can't think of a way to be objective about it. And here in Australia, I think, not a gigantic 
amount of sexism I see on a day-to-day basis. And I work, you know, in hospitality most of the time. I'd say there's pretty much none there, to be perfectly frank. In your kind of milieu, in your particular workplace? In my particular... Okay, granted that there would be, like, horrific uh, abuses in, like, some small hospitality industries, certainly. But, like, decent-sized places, nobody's getting... Uh, again, this is me not being objective, I suppose. No I one slapped your ass recently. Sorry? <laughs> no one slapped your ass recently. Um, was the pity. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's It seems very basically competency-focused. Mm. Yeah, and then I think you can make that argument across the board and the counter-argument to that would be that women are often perceived as less competent I mean, this is something that happens in comedy where I think it's actually more relevant because part of your competence is your perceived competence in comedy. Part yeah, of sure, being funny is being is having people trust you to be funny. And so you have to reach a higher standard for them to give you that trust. Mm-hmm. So, again, I would say that I can I can feel that as a vibe. In the room? In or the room. Yeah, and okay. I think I noticed it more, and I've spoken about this before on the podcast, I noticed it more when I went to the UK. Oh, maybe I spoke about it in a Patreon blog. Coming back from the UK, you realise, I realise that my accent works against me here in a way that it doesn't in the UK. How so? So here I sound educated, there I sound neutral. There's no class implication to my accent. Mm. So I don't have to overcome that hurdle of being seen to be pretentious or, you know, being, try, you know, yeah, thinking the, that I'm better than my audience or any of those yeah. things, which I don't do, but there is a presumption of that that you have to overcome here. A presumption of guilt that you have to overcome. Yeah, purely based on your accent. Based which on is my accent. And, and in a similar way, I can feel a level of sexism in some rooms that isn't there in others. Okay. Even before I've opened my mouth. So in the same way as I can feel when I start telling jokes if an audience is classist about my accent, before I've even got to the microphone, you can feel in the audience if they're like, "Mm, a woman. Hmm. And that was one of the reasons why I used to bring the banjo on stage a lot more than I do now uh, because people go, ooh, a banjo rather than, ugh, a woman. Okay. Can, weird question, but can you... Uh, I, I've never performed in any capacity, but can you actually physically see the audience when you're standing up there on the stage? Not quite. You can. It depends on the room, depends on the lighting. Usually you can see the front row and maybe the front three or four rows, and beyond that you just get a smell for it. I think it's a... It's weird, these things we sort of pick up and we don't know what it is we're uh, sensing. Yeah. Like... Um, but if you, if you filmed an audience, even with that blackness in the room during a set, from my point of view, I could go back after the set and point out what the vibe was in certain parts of the room. See, that's pretty cool. That's one of those, uh, one of those expertise things where people, you know, like the whole uh, sexing chickens things, where uh, it's a full-time job where you learn to, ter- to tell the difference between a, uh, a male chicken hatchling and a female chicken hatch- hatchling and this is a, like naturally like a big business for uh, 
for the production of chickens because you want female chickens to lay eggs and nobody has any use for the uh, male chickens. They just get killed. And you don't obviously want to feed them for like three months before you can tell if they're a, a boy or a girl. So apparently the guys who do it do not know what they are looking at in the process. They're just sitting at a factory line of chicken, 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 chicken hacks doing. They're all just tiny little yellow balls of fluff. And they, uh, you know, just kill 50% of them perfectly accurately, not having a clue what it is they're looking at. How can they test the accuracy? Like, the horrificness of that all aside, how can they test this accuracy? Because I mean there, there, are no, there are no male chickens coming out the other end six months later and they know what percentage they killed. So Wow, yeah. that's amazing and terrifying. Mm. But yes, I, I would say it's a similar thing in... Except in that you can, um, you talk about it among comedians. You'll come off stage and you'll give someone a heads up about, you know, usually, I mean, it's of, often very obvious things like there's a hen's party over there uh. or there's old grumpy people over there who are not enjoying themselves. There's this man who's been dragged along by his wife, which you can see by his posture. You know, all of that stuff you can, you can relay to another comedian. You can communicate what the the vibe of a room is i don't know if it would make a lot of sense to somebody who wasn't a performer at least yeah i mean i i I certainly know what a nuisance a hen's party can be as i said i work in hospitality quite a bit so yeah some of that i would understand and some of it i would not granted would you be able to you know in 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 your hospitality thing would you be able to look over a crowd and sense to a certain extent, I'm, I mainly do back of house stuff these days. Back when I was tending bar, like you can spot trouble coming reasonably accurately. Like, um, yeah, you get a sense for who'll be trouble, which is, again, I'd say the signals are pretty obvious though. Like Young what? Men, basically, Young men are trouble? <laughs> well, yes. Generally, like, and again, you go off like dress sense a lot of the time. And uh, yeah. It's all just cliche stuff like hen par- hen's parties, which is people getting drunk and uh, being a problem. Yeah, I think drunk in groups is mm. often your sign. I mean, uh, sorry for anyone who's listening. I don't know if you can pick up this weird whining noise in the background. That's not to do with my equipment. That's something that's happening yep. in the real world. I cannot tell if it's going to be completely obnoxious for the next half an hour or if it's going to stop any second now. Sounds like a pipe pipes situation. I would I would have gone with like fire alarm, but um Don't yeah. fire alarms usually go up and down, have a bit of a variation in them. Yeah, that would uh make way more sense, so I don't know why I said fire alarm, but <laughs> it does sound like an, an electrical signal of some sort. Just just put a little notch filter in, you'll be able to get rid of it no problems. Yes, if I were any good at editing my own podcast, uh-huh. I would totally do that. As it is, I'm just going to apologise to my audience. Well, um, aren't you an audience nice? <laughs> they are actually remarkably tolerant. They put up with a lot. I'm just hoping that because these are directional mics, it won't be picking that up uh, too much. Hmm. But, yeah, have you been reading anything interesting? Reading anything interesting? I just reread A Moon is a Harsh Mistress what by did Robert you Heinlein. Think of it. And I thought, well... It's more adolescent than I remembered when I read it as an adolescent, yeah. Yeah, I find that about a lot of the Golden Age sci-fi authors, that they're a little bit... um, uh, Yeah, adolescent would be the way to put it. Another way would be like slightly spectrum-y, a little bit bit 
detached from the humanity of their characters. Yes, yes. They they wrote good ideas rather than good characters, generally speaking. Which is like, why I'm a big fan of Lois McMaster Boojold. Very fond of her, yes. Because she's quite good at catching yeah, both. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The sort of human implications and the technological mm. stuff. I actually just uh, recently read a- Ada Palmer's first two books. Have you have you got so really really good? Um, yeah, hard to characterize. That's good. Um, I like hard to characterize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, sort of a theme of your podcast, as I understand it in a way. But um, I do highly recommend those two books to anyone who is listening which is not something i often do plug something um violent real sense of uh confusion about it and in fact a lot of sexual politics in it as well which is again like a modern sci-fi trope uh sexual politics yeah yeah very much so sort of the it's you know kind of a trope to uh now use you know the absence of gender gender Pronouns? Is it? Is that a pronoun? My grasp of grammar is poor. Yes. Yeah. Um, he, she. Yeah, to just choose one and uh, describe all the characters with the same pronouns, which you know can work. Yeah. Didn't didn't that come about when one of one of those books, a book that was all female pronouns, won the Nebula or Hugo Award? Yeah, I can't remember what it won. I think the name of the book was Ancillary Justice. Yes. And again, that was a good book. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, I have no problem with people doing these things. As I said, uh, Ancillary Justice was good. Ada Palmer's books are great. I kind of feel like it should serve the story rather than... I think if you set out to write a work, work of fiction to make a political statement, you kind of screwed it up before you uh, started. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a something about art where if you I don't want to, I don't I don't want to mythologize art because I think that's done too much I think it it should be treated like a craft but if you have your conclusion ready set before you begin if you know what you want to say entirely then you end up with quite a wooden work Mm. i think you need to leave at least something open i think you need to leave some percentage to be determined by the progress of your process yeah to be the to be the well story in the case of fiction or to let characters speak for themselves rather than to you know be your voice yes i think that's one of the problems in the world now people know what they're going to say before they say it when they're going into any mm. kind of discussion or any kind of group. And they o- often, I think that leads you to knowing what you have seen before you see it. Right. Um, sort of like the whole echo chamber effect where, or, or like a straw man thing. Yeah, where, where to a certain extent. Where you've identified your opponent and... Uh, yeah, or you've identified someone as an opponent before they've even voiced their views and so yeah having heard some initial steps you do not need to hear the entirety of the argument yeah and i think that's really you know useful it's a human pattern pattern recognition thing and to a certain extent mostly yes if you see someone who presents one view it's likely that they hold a whole barrage of Mm -hmm. versions of that view or different in in different fields but 
I think you need to be a little bit careful about that. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, in as much as, yeah, it can be misleading. Like, uh, if you see someone with a swastika tattoo, it's fair to say, you know, what most of their arguments are going to be. But um, someone can be anti-immigration without being racist, in my opinion. And, you know, someone can have traditional views on marriage without, you know... Uh, being homophobic. Well, do you want to kind of unpack the immigration one first because that's slightly less contentious? Okay, sure. And then we can go into the marriage one. So, uh, immigration is an economic issue. There's an economic cost to having uh, a bunch of additional labour in the country and... That cost is generally borne by the people who are working low-end menial jobs uh, because, it, you know, their labour is the labour that drops in price. So people aren't necessarily stupid just because they're working a low-end menial job. They're aware of this issue and they can be opposed to immigration purely on eco- economic grounds. And, like, this is something, again, that I've literally well, seen people do. I think you can also be opposed to immigration on cultural grounds without being racist. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is... I'm, I'm sure the uh, Australian Native Aboriginals were absolutely opposed to immigration on cultural grounds and they weren't really racist about it as such. They were just, you know, aware of the fact that this was going to have a deleterious effect on their culture. Um, yeah... So, I don't like all cultures. Some of them are bad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's. I think the reality is that I can understand where a lot of the anti-immigration sentiment comes from, and I think that the the left wing argument for it. Uh, which I sort of find myself emotionally allied with as the child, as the you know grandchild of immigrants, and you know as somebody who has been I- an immigrant in different countries at different times. E- each individual story of immigration is usually a good one. Mm. You know, you you are seeking a better life, you're seeking a safer place, you are, you know, and and immigrants enrich a culture as well at a certain pace. But the culture that exists sort of and – and again, this is a really dangerous argument because you don't want to come across as one of these, like, fascists. Mm. But the, the nature of a country or the culture of a country isn't inherent in its geography. No. It's inherent in its systems, in its peoples, in its cultural norms, in its manners. Yeah, it's a, a grown structure, stuff. yeah. And, and that – cannot but be affected by immigration and ideally you want it to be uh, to be affected in a slow way so that you can adjust to yeah, the changes you take the good bits out of the immigrants uh, oh god that's had a terrible um, yeah this is why i say um, it's a dangerous argument because it's not an easy one to do without sounding like a complete maniac you, you appropriate the <laughs> culture of uh the immigrants and you know abandon the parts of the culture that so it's not a chosen process like you know, the, the wave of Italian immigrants here in Australia, uh, we got, you know, the best coffee in the world out of that and pretty good Italian food. Um, you know, 
th there's a process that happens where people acclimatize and affect the country and are affected by the country. And generally speaking, I consider it right to be more affected by a country that you move to than than you affecting it, if that makes sense, right? The, the balance of change should be on, on the culture immigrating. Uh, otherwise, why are you immigrating at all? That was very well done. That was some tricky turf to step across. And you, well, seemed, you managed to do it in a non-offensive way. Well, well, we'll wait until we, I hear the recording of my own voice before I decide how uh, offensive I've been. <laughs> wait until you hear the Twitter comments. Read the Twitter comments before you decide how offensive you've been. Uh, and then, so, in terms of the gay marriage, what do you think... Or, well, I, I jumped to the conclusion that when you said traditional marriage, that was a... Yeah, yeah. That was a proxy for the current gay marriage debate that's happening in Australia. Mm. Where would you say that that comes from, if not homophobia? Just, like, people... Basically, a religious background, where, they're like, marriage is a holy institution for the purposes of generating kids. And, like, I don't personally, like, I think that argument is wrong. So my personal view on the whole gay marriages debate is that the government should get out of marriage entirely. This should not be a government institution at all. No tax breaks, nothing. Uh, but that's kind of impractical. So my personal view is that if we're going to do this thing, yeah, you basically got to do it on, a, on an equal level. So yes to gay marriage. I, I wouldn't have really cared if they'd gone around calling it civil partnerships and stuff. Um, if everyone got kind of demoted to civil partnerships. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it just seems like it, the people... <laughs> I think most of the people who, who use religion as a basis for their arguments against gay marriage are basically just lying, but there are some people who are, who are genuine about it. Um, yeah, I think... I mean, this is an interesting thing as a kind of a side note to this. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine just yesterday, who is quite severely physically disabled. And she uh, is also incredibly smart and articulate and she is pro-gay marriage. But she was saying one of the most galling things about this whole debate is everybody putting love and marriage up on a pedestal, <laughs> uh, which is sort of frustrating for her, the idea that love can only be actualised through marriage. The best kind of love is, is between two people who want to have a family together, that romantic love is the only and best kind of love and that this, this whole thing has put marriage up on, on a pedestal that is sort of not offensive, upsetting or, or unsettling or somewhat aggressive to, to people who can't get married for, for whatever reason, mm. who's... who's inclinations are not towards romantic love asexual people people who don't have that kind of capacity to have a relationship either physically or psychologically i i, I just was interested because that was not a side of the debate that i'd even begun to think yeah, about Yeah, considered yeah i mean again i mean homosexuality is like what 10 percent of the population is that accurate yeah, I mean, again, self-reporting, but I think it's yeah. about 10% of the population, one in 10. Which is, like, kind of crazy high that it's taken this long to... Uh, I suppose it's because you can't see it, you know? Like, which, which sounds silly. It just seems... It seems strange to me that it's taken this long for 10% of the population to uh, stand up 
and uh, sort of demand equal treatment under the law. I and I'm aware, I'm aware that like gay rights campaigning has been going on for a long time, but um, 10% is well, a big chunk of the population. Though. I think part of the reason that it has become an equal rights argument is because only recently has marriage become about love. It's relatively recent in our culture that marriage was not... And even now you still see the traces of it, but that at least overtly marriage is not about class or money. It's about love. It's not about your parents' approval. It's about love. It's not about allying two great families. It's about love. Like That has not been in our culture the predominant understanding of marriage for very long. No. No, like post-industrial revolution, I imagine? Yeah, basically. Like, mm. But still, like, even before that, um, you know, when marriage was like a, a financial contract most of the time, there are still like, uh, I guess we weren't really big on human rights at all in that kind of an era. <laughs> so, yeah, fair enough. Well, you were saying just now that, that the children's factory, children's work and rights only came through after animal rights. Yeah, the, the first test cases in the United Kingdom were... Uh, the arguments used were that uh, these child children being worked in factories had to be treated at least as well as an animal had to be treated, obviously. So, yeah, there was no child labour legislation, but there was animal cruelty legislation. And, uh, yeah, weird. We're, we're a Which, you know, species. if people tell you that religion hasn't done anything good, animal cruelty stuff came off the back of... of religious arguments about our duty to look after God's creation. Really? Which, yeah. I did not know that. Um, yeah, so this this idea of uh, kind of Bible bashing people as being anti-environmental, there's no reason that they should be. You could make a strong argument from a very conservative perspective that we should shepherd God's creation as best we can, including, you know, lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Makes sense, I suppose. I mean, in practice, most of what I see of religion is like the uh, American megachurch kind of a vibe, which probably only happens because I only really consume religious stuff through mass media at this point in my life. So I don't see like small community churches or anything. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no fundamental reason why a religion can't be based around like the whole natural naturalistic approach. But most of the really powerful religions tend to talk about, like, mastering nature. Yeah, and, and that's because the very powerful tend to be the ones who are good at playing with the system. Yeah. And yeah. there's no financial benefit to well, there, there non, is a, non-exploitation as a principle. Yeah, there's a long-term benefit, but uh, not really a... It doesn't line anyone in particular's pockets. Yeah, but so. the long-term benefit doesn't really help if you don't actually believe in the afterlife. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, like there's a literal here on Earth real long-term economic benefit as well. But um, no one... It, it's the whole common situation. It's good for everyone but not for anyone in particular. So why do it? Yeah. I don't know why. I, if I could figure out a really, really solid argument why, uh, then we could change the world. But... As it is, just looking in your own... I don't think people are very good at seeing secondary or tertiary consequences for any individual action. No, often not primary ones either, um, unfortunately. But 
Yeah. Like you smoke, for example. I do smoke, yeah. Because I am... And, and as a rational man, why? I'm a drug addict. That is the <laughs> long and short... Seriously, I, I'm a drug addict. I know it's terrible and I don't care enough about myself to quit. So, like... What would make you care enough about yourself to quit? Would you have to kind of work on your self-esteem or would it be a matter of um, cold turkey by force or is it a psychological addiction or...? Well... There are psychological aspects to addiction, of course, but essentially uh, I don't understand my own motivations well. Like, as any drug addict will tell you, like, you go day by day telling yourself you'll quit tomorrow and, you know, it's been 10 years now, so tomorrow. What, why did you start? Uh, I was depressed, really depressed. And... uh started smoking so because i don't know people make bad decisions when they're depressed i wanted to i wanted to feel different than the way i felt so i suppose it was like a self-medicating thing Mm. very controlled self-destruction yeah yeah suicide by the uh by the long route yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be aggressive or accusatory. I'm just interested in that process because yeah, I think I, mean, I was always super, super wary of any kind of drugs just because I grew up with mum being so sick and the idea of impairing myself in any way just seemed a little bit macabre. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, like 20 when I started smoking, which is a weirdly late age. Ah, uh, your brain smoking. hasn't finished forming. Oh, uh, well... Most people who start smoking start at like 16. Mm. I mean, 20 is weirdly late to do it. Mm. But you just started and you haven't stopped. Yeah, I mean, I've stopped a couple of times. And I'm sure I'll beat it eventually. But I've got to do the actual work, unfortunately, rather than merely talking about it. Yeah, it is. I think it is one of those things where... um, yeah, I've done things like that. Like I haven't been to the gym in two and a half months. Um, I went to the gym for the first time today because just before Edinburgh or just before heading to London, I got sick and then I was jet lagged and then I was doing Edinburgh and then after Edinburgh, I got sick again. And I just don't, I don't get sick very often. So mm. this, this kind of two and a half month period was really kind of threw me off my game a little bit. I, I don't like being... As someone who's quite conscious of how fragile your body yeah, is yeah. and can be, any extended period of sickness makes me really upset. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, on the surface, but just... Existentially? I, existentially. Like, yeah. I find myself using my particular coping mechanisms, which is reading fantasy novels when work should be done and mixing up dates and things, getting going to the wrong place for appointments. Ah, oh, that's a fun one. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I think I'm a little bit like you in that way and often my motivations are a little bit obscure to myself and I will realise that I'm upset or angry after the consequences of that have <laughs> been met. Yeah. <laughs> after oh, I've already... I did this because I was angry. Yeah, oh, that's what that was. That was, oh, I see. And there's nothing more annoying than somebody telling you you're angry. Oh, God, yes. When you don't think you're angry and then you realise later that you actually were angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is also very annoying. If you, if you want to really annoy someone, a great thing to do is to tell them to calm down when they're already calm. 
that's really good for annoying someone. Yeah, and you have a, a, a Rolodex of ways to annoy people most efficiently? Uh, no, no, I've just used that one a couple of times. And it, it's very effective. I mean, it, it's hardly good manners. No, it's not, but sometimes there's a difference. See, being deliberately rude is bothers me less than people being accidentally rude. Why is that? I, I mean, I think being deliberately rude implies that you know the structures that you're subverting. Maybe. I don't know, maybe that it's... You prefer malice to ignorance? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you can beat malice, right? Yeah. I mean, it means they're playing by the same rules, at least. You know the playbook. Mm. Uh, well, I, I should wrap up and not keep you for too long. Uh, where can people find you online, or can people find you online? Uh, they can't really. Um, no, I can't think of any way to do that. Uh, if anyone wants to talk to me, uh, ask Alice, I guess. She can find me. Yeah, d- uh, hit me up on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E or alicerfraser at gmail.com and let me know if you want me to pass a message on and I will send the carrier pigeon out. Thank you so much for having tea with me. You're very welcome. Bye.
leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lolly rifles, all lolly rifles.